0: Well, we're continuing in our series through the Gospel of Mark, and today we're looking at uh, the famous story of Jesus healing a demon-possessed man, and there's something special about this exorcism because it is the longest recorded story of an exorcism in all of Scripture. Now, uh, in the church, when you say exorcism, everyone's ears perk up, right? Uh, We immediately think of that terrifying movie, if you guys saw it as a child or an adult, uh, one of the scariest movies I've ever seen. Uh, We're not going to be talking about that today, Uh, but it's just very interesting. We in the church, we have this kind of fascination uh, with spiritual warfare, um, in the same way maybe we like to play with fire or do dangerous things. We're kind of fascinated with like demons and Satan and warfare, but at the same time, we're scared of it. So we want to hear stories about it, but we ourselves don't want to engage in it. Um, but in this passage, it is the longest story of an exorcism in all of Scripture. And so if you have your Bibles, please turn to Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. Uh, We'll be reading uh, the first 13 verses to begin, and then we will finish off the passage uh, later in the message. May God bless the reading of his holy and inerrant word. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him, out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and bruising himself with stones. And when, they, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. Amen. The word of the Lord. In so many ways, this is a weird text. It's troubling. I mean, we think of the pigs, and we're like, what did the pigs do to deserve a drowning death in the sea? They seem so innocent, especially in this day and age. We're such animal lovers, and we know the pigs are sentient, and they're smart. And if you've seen, you know, the story of Wilbur and and things like that, you're like, oh, gosh. Like, Lord, where's the compassion? Where's the creation care? It's a strange and troubling text. Many years ago, a famous atheist philosopher named Bertrand Russell He wrote a book titled, Why I Am Not a Christian. I have it on my bookshelf, and if you ever want to get into the mind of an atheist, uh, that's a great book to read, Uh, not to follow, but to investigate. And in his book, he cited this story, this story here in Mark 5, as one of the reasons why he didn't believe in God, as one of the reasons why he didn't believe that the Bible was the word of God. He said the story offended him the most. Not just that 2,000 pigs were unnecessarily drowned, but the entire idea of Jesus encountering a a demon-possessed, crazed man about Jesus having a conversation with these demons and then healing him. To Bertrand Russell, that was just unbelievable. That was just crazy. And there are some of us here today that might share in his skepticism. You might be here thinking, that's right. I mean, who in their right mind believes in demons today? That's so irrational. That's so illogical. You see, we may not openly admit it to our friends, our spouses, our small group letters, uh, small group members here in the church. But when we hear stories of demons or the devil in the Bible, we have a hard time really believing they exist. Isn't that true for many of us? We have a hard time really believing that angels and demons exist. See, here's the weird thing. We have an easier time believing in God and Jesus as the Son of God than actually believing in the reality and the activity of, Jesus and, uh, of demons and angels. That sense? Let me say that one more time, right? It's easier for us to believe in God and Jesus than angels and demons, okay? Now, why is this? Why is this? and and i was kind of thinking about this this week and i think the main reason is this if angels and demons do exist then the very real implication is that some of us some of them are are around that they exist here on earth doing angelic or demonic things okay does that make sense if they do exist then there some of them not all of them but some of them are on earth doing angelic or demonic things You see, for us, in our kind of like church, Christian little repackaging that we do for ourselves, we can keep God and Jesus in heaven. They're in heaven, in a distant spiritual realm, while you and I, we live out our physical lives here on earth. And that's neat. That's a clean dichotomy for us. God is in heaven. We're on earth, right? But if angels and demons do exist, doing good or causing mischief, on earth, today, in our world, then that's invasive to our worldview. Does that make sense? That's invasive to us, our lives, just like aliens coming to the earth. That's like invasion, right? And, and we, 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 that, that, that's unsettling to think that there could be angels and demons doing things, whether it's good or evil, in our lives, in our world. That's unsettling. But I wanna remind you today that if you believe God exists, then it's actually inconsistent and it's illogical to believe that demons do not. Okay? Or to broaden that statement, say you're not sure if God exists, but if you believe God could exist, and actually most people in the world believe God can exist, that he could exist, then it's irrational to believe that demons could not that demons cannot. You see, friends, it is virtually impossible to prove that God cannot exist. Did you know know that? It's virtually impossible to prove that he cannot exist. College students, go ahead and ask your philosophy professors for a logical proof that God doesn't exist. They won't have one. They won't have one. I was a philosophy major at USC, and I encountered a lot of atheists, but I never encountered an argument proving that God cannot exist. It's just too strong a statement. It's too absolute. So any sober-minded intellectual knows that we can't make that absolute statement, that God absolutely cannot exist. An atheist will have have reasons for their belief that God doesn't exist. In the same way, a Christian has reasons for our belief for why God does exist, but they don't have a logical proof against the existence of God. So all of this is to say, let's not blindly reject this passage just because you and I think, oh, angels, demons, impossible. No, that's a very broad and intellectually irresponsible statement to make. If you think angels and demons are irrational, that's actually um, a bigger statement than you actually realize. They're actually quite rational. It's very quite possible. Now, others of you might take a more sociological position in rejecting uh, demon possession or angels, claiming that the authors of the Bible were just primitive. Okay? They were primitive in their worldview. The argument goes like this. Back then, they didn't understand psychology. Back then, they didn't understand disease and mental illness like we do. So what they did was every time they met someone who was schizophrenic, every time they met someone who had Tourette's syndrome or epilepsy, they just kind of chalked that off as demon possession. Does that make sense? That's the argument. That's the, that's the, that's the anthropological uh, position. But now for us here in 2018, with modern science and psychology, we know better. We know better than them 2,000 years ago, okay? They misdiagnosed sick people as demon-possessed, okay? But we know better than to do that. We know nobody really gets demon-possessed. They're just troubled, right? They have disease, mental illness, things like that. Friends, did you know that the Bible actually makes these distinctions as well? Look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 24. It's gonna go up on the screen for the sake of time. Matthew chapter 4, 24. Matthew tells us this. So his, and this is Jesus, his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. You see the categories, the different people who were afflicted, the different people who needed to be healed by Jesus. And that phrase, those having seizures, in the old King James, right, that wonderful classic version, they actually translate that as lunatics, right? Those were lunatics, people that were considered mentally ill, those people who had epilepsy, those people who were schizophrenic, maybe bipolar, and our more modern translations don't use the word lunatic because that's just not a polite way to categorize people. Our use of that word has has changed over the years, but the point is this. The Bible did categorize the sick, In specific ways. They didn't just use broad strokes and say everyone's demon-possessed, right? No, they understood people had disease, that people had mental illness, that people were demon-possessed, and they all took them to Jesus. So let's not be too quick to dismiss the Bible for being primitive and misdiagnosing the sick. In fact, you and I, we might be the ones with the incomplete worldview because we tend to overemphasize the physical We tend to overemphasize the scientific while turning a blind eye to the spiritual. Does that make sense? 2,000 years ago, they had a more holistic view of the person. They knew there were physical diseases, they knew there were mental diseases, but they also knew there were spiritual causes. What about us? How blind are we if we are missing one-third of that ability to diagnose the sick? To diagnose the sick. All of this was laid out Uh, so that you and I might be more open to the truth of this narrative. That you and I might just not hear the story of demons and then dismiss it as myth or feel disconnected to it. And I want you to know now, for good reasons, it is not irrational, nor is it primitive to believe in demons. Now today, I'm gonna take a more traditional approach to delivering the message. I usually have three points uh, that, that go through uh, the sermon, and I actually heard that some people are like, man, Pastor Michael, if you don't preach three points, I can't take notes, and I can't follow, and I completely disconnect. All right, uh, sorry, no three points for you today, but I'm praying that God will still bless you. Um, The more traditional approach to interpreting and preaching a passage was uh, the preacher would start off with interpretation, and that was called exposition. He would just unpack the truths of the passage, and then the second move was application. So how then are we to live? And I want to kind of try that out today. We're going to begin with with interpretation and then finish with theological implications and applications of the passage. So, this story, the demon-possessed man that confronts Jesus. It's part of a trilogy of stories about Christ's power. I love trilogies, right? I love trilogies. And right now you're probably thinking about your favorite ones. We all know Karate Kid was not the best. Um, But this is a trilogy of stories about Christ's power. And with each story, there is a progression of Jesus' power so that you and I as hearers of the gospel might understand who he truly is and trust him as Lord and Savior. So last week was, uh, was the first, the beginning of the trilogy, where we looked at Jesus calming the storm, and he showed his authority over all creation. This week, we're in kind of uh, uh, miracle number two. And we're looking at Jesus' dominion over Satan and the demons. And next week, we're going to see Jesus' power over death and disease by healing a woman who was bleeding for years and raising a young girl from the dead. Three amazing miracles, three miracles that tell us more about Jesus and hopefully leading us to faith and trust in him. Now, the first thing we need to see from the text is Jesus' confrontation with the, uh, uh, the demoniac, right? Right? And everything about this passage tells us that Jesus is confronting sin, that Jesus is confronting the unclean. The demon-possessed man is unclean, and he's banished from the community. He's living by himself among the tombs. That is the definition of being ceremonially unclean. The pigs that we hear about, the pigs that were uh, just you know, filled with the demons and they go down to a watery grave. The pigs are a symbol of unclean food to the Jews. And the land itself, that shore that Jesus lands on, that's called the region of the Gerasenes. That area was not a Jewish territory. It was considered unclean territory where Jews and Gentiles intermingled. They cohabitated. It's part of the northern uh, part of the Sea of Galilee right? And uh, it was a very Gentile, very Greek-dominated region. And so the Jews, the ones in Jerusalem, the, the holy ones, the people who are set apart as the people of God, they considered that region, and all the Jews living up there, they were compromising. That was an unclean region. Three hugely unclean things. But despite this, Jesus goes, and he's pressing into the unclean. And he's unafraid of this confrontation and he's unafraid of the social pressures that the Jewish leaders might lay upon him. Why? Because he's called to preach and proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God and nothing will stop him. And just as Jesus gets off the boat onto the seashore, immediately a demon-possessed man confronts him and he runs towards him and he cries out in a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Now Mark, in this passage, he goes to great lengths to describe this demon-possessed man. This man was cursed, and he lived a wretched existence. You will rarely be able to read the description of an ordinary figure, a character in the Bible that had this lowly, this lamentable a description. He lived a banished life. He was exiled from his community. He lived among the tombs. He lived in a a graveyard by himself. People had tried to bind him. People had tried to treat him and care for him, tried to restrain him with chains, but he was so strong that he would break the shackles and he would wrench the chains. These demons tormented him so much. He cried out day and night and he mutilated himself with stones. Mark's description is more of a a wild beast, right? A wild beast that you're chaining out in the backyard because you don't want him to hurt anyone or hurt himself. doesn't sound like and seem like Mark is describing a man, but that's what's going on here. This was a man possessed by a demon that no one could help and no one could subdue. Commentators tell us that in this trilogy of miracles, spiritual warfare is in full effect. You see, Satan doesn't want Jesus to continue to preach the gospel of the kingdom. And so last week, we saw the storm. And Satan was doing everything he could to stop Jesus from spreading the good news of the kingdom of God. And so he tries to drown Jesus and his disciples in that terrifying great storm but Jesus calms that storm. And here we see that Satan is sending his legion, his demons to confront Jesus, to stop him from preaching, to stop him from ministering. But just as Jesus calmed the storm, he's about to calm this violent man. And it's interesting that the demon knows the name of Jesus and he knows his power as the son of the most high God. It almost seems like he's worshiping him like recognizing him. It seems like a statement of adoration, but friends, that's not the case. There's spiritual warfare going on here. And by naming Jesus, the demon is trying to gain power over him. Look at the words again. After he says, Jesus, what do you want with us, son of the most high? He says, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Okay, In the name of God, by the authority and power of God, do not torment me me. The demons were trying to call on God to overpower the son of God, but they know that this is a fight that they can't win, and they cry out for mercy. Jesus then asked the demon his name, and the response is, legion, for we are many. The term legion, it's a, it's a Roman military term, and it numbers anywhere from five to six thousand soldiers, and the point is not that this man had five thousand demons inside of him. That would be a lot, um, But the point is that there were many, that there was more than one, that this was no ordinary demon possession, that Jesus was facing an army of demons on the shores of Galilee. But again, by the authority of Jesus's word, the demons are cast out of the man. Jesus says, come out of the man, you unclean spirits. You see, in spiritual warfare, if you've ever seen the movie The Exorcist, or if you've ever read any of the other stories of, of, of spiritual warfare in the scriptures, everyone is always calling upon a, a higher power, right? You know, that, that priest in The Exorcist, the power of Christ compel you, right? <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> uh, the, the chills. Anyways, um... That's what's going on in spiritual warfare. They're calling on a higher power. If you guys remember the Old Testament story where Elijah is battling the Baal prophets, the Baal prophets are calling out to Baal and they're crying out to him, cutting themselves, asking for a higher power to consume that bull. Well, that doesn't happen. That bull is never consumed. What does Elijah do? Does he do it himself? by his word, by his hands, by his power. No, Elijah calls upon the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Yahweh, the God of Israel, and God answers. And that fire comes down and consumes the bull. That was spiritual warfare, and Elijah called upon a higher power. I've never done an exorcism, but if I do, I will call upon not my ordination, not Reverend Michael, Not Pastor DC or any of our leaders or the name of our church. I will call upon the name of Jesus Christ to set the captives free. But you know what Jesus does? What does Jesus do? He doesn't call upon a higher power. He says, come out of that man, you unclean spirit. Why? Because he is the higher power. He is the Lord of all. He has authority over the living and the dead. He's greater than the, de- than the demons, he's mightier than Satan, so Jesus doesn't call upon a higher power, he is the higher power, and that is so powerful, that is so poignant for us to see in the text, just as this is no ordinary, de- ordinary demon-possessed man, Jesus is no ordinary religious worker, he's no ordinary spiritual figure, he is the son of God, the most high. Then we have an unusual twist in the story. The demons beg Jesus, don't send us out of the country, but rather let us go into the herd of pigs nearby. And Jesus grants them their request. And the entire herd of 2,000 pigs go rushing down a steep bank, drowning in the sea. And at this point, there's a deep moral dilemma. Deep moral dilemma. Now for us, we do think poor little pigs, but uh, the, the New Testament writers And the people in that context, they actually weren't thinking that way. They weren't thinking poor pigs. They weren't as sentimental, right? Uh, They thought, actually, when they saw 2,000 pigs rushing down the bank into the Sea of Galilee, you know what they thought? They thought, look at all that money, right? Look at all of that money going right down the drain, literally. And so this is the dilemma that Mark raises towards the owners of the pigs, Whoever owned that great herd, they just lost a huge sum of money. They lost a huge uh, piece of their property, and how could Jesus do that? How could Jesus allow that to happen? Why would Jesus allow this miracle to happen and come at such a high cost to a third party? Here's the point. In the eyes of Jesus, the rescue and restoration of one person, this man who was possessed, by a legion of demons is more important than vast capital assets, okay? Let me say that again. In the eyes of Jesus, the rescue and restoration of one person, it's more important than vast capital assets. Whether it's pigs, land, riches, the value of redeeming one human soul is worth far, far more. And that's true of this demon-possessed man and brothers and sisters. That's true of you. I know there's so many of us that struggle with with identity and self-worth. In this passage today, Jesus is telling, no, you are so valuable to me. You are precious to me. More than the thousands of pigs and cattle and whatever this world may say is a vast sum of money, whatever this world may say is, is capital and precious, Jesus says, you are far more. But the people don't get this. They don't get this. The man is miraculously healed and Mark tells us what happens next. And so I promised we'd finish the passage. Let's do that. Let's go back to verse 14. Verse 14 in our passage. The herdsmen, who they just saw their pigs just lose their minds and start running down the bankment into the ocean, into the sea, they fled and they told it in the city and in the country and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described it to them, what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Amen. Amen. The man who had been deranged and cast off from society, who was once such a great threat to others, such a great threat to himself, He was now in his right mind. He was clothed. He was sane. He was under control. He was sitting, just chilling with Jesus. As all of the people from the city and the countryside came and they heard what had happened, they wanted to see, and they witnessed a miracle. But just as the disciples were afraid of Jesus after he calmed the storm, the people here are afraid as well. Why? Because they heard about what had happened to the demons and the pigs, and they were like, oh my gosh, if Jesus keeps doing ministry here, we're all going to lose everything. Jesus was a threat to the kingdoms of these people. Jesus was a threat to their material position, possessions. Jesus was a threat to their established, current way of life. And so they didn't see Jesus as the Son of God. They didn't see Jesus as mighty and merciful. They saw him as a threat, and so they begged him to leave. They were afraid. And they said, "Jesus, please leave." When Jesus cast the demons into the herd, or allowed the demons to go into the herd of pigs, you see, Jesus knew He was putting the people to the test, and it was a test that they failed. The test was this: What is more important to you? Your pigs, your livelihood, your career, your finances or fellowship with me? What is more important? knowing me, experiencing my healing power, receiving from me life everlasting, or do you want to hold on to your pigs? Which was more important? And they chose their pigs. They chose life without Jesus. They failed that test. They begged him to leave. Just think about that. Jesus comes into your community. He does a miracle, and rather than welcome him and greet him and be amazed at him, you're like, please, leave. They begged him. But the healed man, finally, he did some begging of his own. And this is such a beautiful contrast. They beg him to leave, and Jesus says, okay. Jesus says, okay, you want me to leave? I will leave. He gets into his boat, and this healed man follows after Jesus, and he begs him. He says, please, let me follow you. He begged Jesus to remain with him, his healer and his redeemer, And this pleading and this longing to be with Jesus is a great sign that this man wasn't just miraculously healed, but that he had received the gift of salvation. He understand who Jesus was. And he wanted to be a follower of Jesus. Not just receive the benefits of Jesus, but he wanted to follow Jesus. And so he begs him, please let me follow you. Let me be with you. But Jesus says no. He says no because he has a greater plan he has a greater purpose for this man who has been healed. And he commands, he says, "Go to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. And how he has had mercy on you." This man obeys. He tells everyone throughout the Decapolis, this 10 Greek or 10 Roman cities in that region. He tells everyone in the Decapolis about the mercy and the might of Jesus, and everyone marvels. That's the theological interpretation. Let's go to our application. What do we do with this? How do we live this out? Do we kind of go for like demon-possessed people and say, let's let's, kind of like follow this pattern and do some healing? Well, see, brothers and sisters, the demons had it right. They knew who Jesus was. They knew what his mission was. They knew that Jesus was the son of God who came to destroy the works of the devil. So when they were afraid of Jesus, They were afraid of Jesus destroying them and their works. They were right to fear him. Jesus came as the true light, breaking into the darkness of the world. This is why they were afraid. They knew he came to destroy their works. What they didn't know was how he would do it. They didn't know how he would do it, but we do. We've heard the gospel story. You see, everyone expected Jesus to save with this display of earthly power this demonstration of his earthly power and his earthly might and his earthly authority and that, that, that by his word and by some supernatural act, all, all of the enemies of Israel would be cast out. All of the demons, all of the effects of sin would be immediately taken away and they wanted to see that. But that's not how Jesus destroys the work of Satan. That's not how Jesus ultimately defeats these demons and deals with the problem of evil, deals with the consequence of sin. Brothers and sisters, think of that demon-possessed man again. Before he met Jesus, he was bloodied, probably almost naked by himself in the tombs, exiled and condemned. He was unclean. But once Jesus healed him, he was clothed, sane, He was sitting there in health. Again, he was accepted into the communities. If you keep reading through the Gospel of Mark, you're going to see Jesus and this man exchange places. Jesus and this man exchange places. When Jesus is hanging on that cross, he is stripped down and he is naked. When Jesus is going to the cross, he is beaten and he is bloodied. When Jesus is going to the cross, he is cast out and he is scorned, scorned by his disciples, scorned by the very people he came to save. They said, we want Barabbas, not Jesus. Crucify him and crucify him. And Jesus dies on that cross. And at the end of Mark, he goes to the tomb. He is going to the tomb. Brothers and sisters, Jesus and this possessed man, they trade places And by his wounds, he is healed. And the same is for us. The same is for us. How do you and I truly experience the power and mercy of Jesus? It's through his life, death, and resurrection. It's because Jesus takes your place. Jesus dies the death that you deserve. Brothers and sisters, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil by his death on the cross. This is the wonder of the gospel. The power and might of Jesus to destroy sin is displayed through his sacrifice and his weakness. See, that's why the gospel is this great paradox. You see the power of Jesus through his weakness on the cross. And because he takes our place, because he dies for you on that cross, this is how Jesus destroys evil. This is how Jesus destroys the evil and sin in you without destroying you. When we understand this, when we understand that Jesus has spared us, that Jesus has saved us, when we understand the extent and the depth of his love for us, you know what it makes us do? It makes us want to follow him. That's what this demon-possessed man, that's what this healed man does. He begs Jesus to follow him. Brothers and sisters, where is your begging? Do you see Jesus and following him as the greatest privilege you could ever have in your entire life? Do you see discipleship to Jesus as the greatest treasure and gift God could ever give you? Or is that language, is that invitation dull and boring and uninspired? Brothers and sisters, if you truly saw Jesus, if you truly understood him, if you tasted of his goodness and his love and grace, you and I would be begging, begging for more of him, begging to be in his presence, begging to follow him, begging to know him more and deeper. And when we cast ourselves before him, Jesus does not deny. He does not deny. He sends us out in the same way he sent out this healed man. He says, you can follow me, but here's what I want your followership to look like. You can abide in me, you can rest in me, you can be connected to me, but this is what it's going to look like by you going out and telling others how great the Lord's mercy is towards you. You see, friends, something amazing happens at the end of this passage. Jesus leaves this region. He leaves the Decapolis. He leaves the Gentiles. They say, leave, please. And he gets in a boat and departs. And immediately we should ask, what about the Gentiles? What about all of those people living in the cities, never getting to hear the good news of Jesus? You see, he leaves that region, but he doesn't leave without a messenger there. He doesn't leave without a witness there. This man who was healed and saved and restored by Jesus, he goes out and he tells his friends and everyone who would hear how much the Lord has done for him. And the gospel went forth amongst the Gentiles and those who heard it marveled. Brothers and sisters, simple question. How much has the Lord done for you? How much has the Lord done for you? You see, this room is filled with people who have never shared their faith, who have never evangelized. And you tell yourself, well, it's because I don't know how to. I don't have enough uh, memory verses from Romans and the Gospels uh, down so I don't know what to say, or I haven't taken an apologetics course, and so I don't know enough to be able to to, to debate and refute uh, uh, unbelievers in their arguments against Christianity and the gospel. And so we say, these are all the reasons. Like, one day I will tell my friends. One day I will tell my family about Jesus. I just need to get more equipped, right? That's the Christian word, equipped. Do you know what Jesus says? You are ready. You are ready if you know how much the Lord has done for you. You are ready to be an evangelist. You are ready to be a witness if you understand the depth of God's mercy towards you. That's the gospel story. That's the gospel story that Jesus wants you and I to tell. You are ready. If you've met Jesus, if you've received his mercy and grace, if you've received forgiveness of sins, then you are ready to go and tell of all that the Lord has has done for you. Who is it in your life right now that needs to hear the good news of Jesus? Who is it in your life that Jesus is sending you out towards? It doesn't have to be to to lost people in Kyrgyzstan or Indonesia or Africa. There are people right now that Jesus has placed in your life that God simply says, go and tell them all that the Lord has done for you. And may the people marvel at Jesus' work and his mercy in your life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word and for your grace. We thank you that you have sent your son, Jesus, who has all authority on heaven and on earth, God, to cast out demons, to heal the sick, to overcome and defeat sin and Satan. Lord, we are so grateful for the power of the gospel. God, today, in this moment, would you renew us again? Would you give us a new joy and a new conviction of your power, of your truth, of your mercy and your might? And God, would that just burn in our hearts and make us long for more? Would you make us a people who are desperate for you? Make us a people who would beg you for more For more intimacy, for more nearness, for more of your presence in our lives. Have mercy on us for the callousness of our hearts. Have mercy on us for taking you for granted and for cheapening the gospel. Would you open our eyes once again on this morning to see the treasure that you are a treasure that satisfies our soul, that heals our wounds and is the greatest story and the greatest news we could ever tell. The loved ones and our neighbors in our lives. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray, amen.